Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 12. We're going to go all the way through verse 26 of chapter 2. I'm going to do things a little different today because it is a longer passage. Uh, I'm not going to read it up front as I usually do. We'll read it as we go. I think that will save a bit of time and uh, repetition because I think we need to really focus in on what the preacher is saying to us, Solomon, the king, the wise king, because he has some wisdom to lay down on us today. Ecclesiastes 1.12-226. Well, Leo Tolstoy was one of the greatest authors of the late 19th and early 20th century. In the 1870s, he experienced a, a, a midlife crisis. Not, he didn't go out and buy a, a red convertible or anything like that. Uh, his crisis was one of, of faith and morality. And, and uh, the result of this crisis that he had was a spiritual awakening. And he outlines it in his book, The Confession. And he wrote... My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions, a question lying in the soul of every person. It was a question without an answer to which one cannot live, as I had found by experience. It was, what will come of what I am doing today or shall do tomorrow? What will come of my life? What is life for? Differently expressed, the question is, why should I live? Why hope for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus, does my life have any meaning that death cannot destroy? Well, the book, his confession, begins with a story. A man is chased by a beast into a well, and at the bottom of that well is a dragon. And the man clings to a branch above the dragon as he's there in the, hanging in the well. And that branch is being gnawed on by two mice. One black, one white that represents night and day and the relentless march of time. And the man is able to lick two drops of honey from the branch. And that drop of honey represents Tolstoy's love of his family and his writing. But because death is inevitable, he no longer finds the honey sweet. And Tolstoy goes on to describe four possible attitudes towards this dilemma. The first is ignorance. If one is oblivious to the fact that death is approaching, you, you can be at peace. But the problem he had was he wasn't ignorant of that fact. It had come crashing in on him. The reality of death, there's no going back once you consider that. The second possibility is what Tolstoy described as Epicureanism. You know that life is fleeting, it's ephemeral, it doesn't last, so hey, enjoy the time that you have. Tolstoy found this unsatisfactory because if you look across the world, all the people in the world, there's so few who can really enjoy what we might call the good life. It's only for a privileged few, and that has no meaning. 
And then he goes on to state the third, the third option, which he states is the most intellectually honest to that situation, and that would be suicide. In the face of the inevitability of death and assuming that God doesn't exist, why wait? Why put it off? Why pretend that this veil of tears means anything when one can just cut to the chase? However, Tolstoy said he was too much of a coward to go there. He could not follow through on this most logically consistent response. And then finally, Tolstoy says that the fourth option, the one that he was taking, was the one of just holding on, living despite the absurdity of it because he is not willing or able to do anything else. It's very sad. It seems utterly hopeless, at least without God. And that's where Tolstoy turned to the question of God's existence. He states that as soon as he said, God is life, life was once again suffused with meaning. God is life. Well, he could have just read the passage before us today and spared himself a lot of trouble because that's the same conclusion that is reached by Solomon here. Look at 2.24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat or drink, eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? You cannot find joy in life by looking for joy in life. One finds joy in life by finding joy in God. As Tolstoy said, God is life. Jesus said, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Therefore, be rich toward God. Solomon agrees here that one's life does not consist in his possessions, and he adds his pleasure, his projects, or his power. True joy is not in the pursuit and possession of these earthly things. True joy is found in God. Who can eat or who can have enjoyment apart from God? True joy is found there in God more specifically in a life of communion or fellowship or relationship with God, a relationship with God that can only be found in union with Jesus Christ by faith. Well, I'll explore that in a few minutes. But first, we need to understand how Solomon came to this conclusion so we can come to that same conclusion ourselves and answer the most important questions about the meaning of life. That apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? So Solomon shows us three things that I want us to look at today. First, the brokenness of the world. Then the emptiness of gaining the world. And then finally, we'll bring it home with the best for us in this world. 
Well, first we see he describes right at the beginning the brokenness of the world. Let's read verse 12, chapter 1, verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is laughing, lacking cannot be counted. So Solomon, the preacher, king over Jerusalem, he was the wisest of men. God had blessed him with great wisdom. Kings came from afar to get his advice, to, to gain wisdom from him. As the scriptures tell us, most famously, the queen of Sheba came and uh, checked him out herself to see how wise he was and was blown away by his wisdom. And here's his conclusion about life as he surveyed everything in life. It is an unhappy business. That word unhappy is literally evil. As I told you when we were looking at Jonah a few weeks ago, that word evil doesn't necessarily mean a moral evil. It can mean a disaster, like a, a tornado or a hurricane, for example. It is, the Bible would describe that as an evil. It is something that causes pain and trouble and difficulty in our lives. And that word business, or busy, as, as it's used twice in this verse, uh, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. That's the noun of the verb form of busy. It's not just your job, your business. It's all of life, your whole business, all your business, all, your, all that you occupy yourself with in life. All of it, Solomon says, is an unhappy business, evil. I have seen everything that is done in this and behold, all is vanity. Last week I said that word means a vapor, a breath. It has no substance. It's lacking. It disappears. It's brief. It's ephemeral. Everything is vanity and a striving after wind. You know, we live our lives thinking, if I could just get that, then everything would be okay. If I could just pay these debts, then everything would be good. If I could just get that promotion, life would be great. If I could just find a, a wife or a husband, then everything would, the stars would align and all would be great in my life. If I could just, 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 and it's like just trying to reach over that hill and when you get over that hill, you find that it's over the next hill and then over the next hill. It's chasing after the wind. You can't catch the wind. You can feel it, and you can reach for it, but you can't grasp it. It's the ultimate carrot on the stick. It's always something just out of reach that we're looking for in this world that we can never get. It's a, a constant craving that's never satisfied. And that's what he's saying here, a striving after the wind. Because, why? It's the state of this world we live in. Verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. What is crooked cannot be made straight, 
and what is lacking cannot be counted. That is an apt description of our world post-fall, the brokenness of the world around us. Everything is crooked. People are crooked. The world is under a curse. It produces thorns and thistles in all of our labor. And we do not think like we're supposed to think. We don't feel like we're supposed to feel or do what we're supposed to do because we're sinners and we're broken. Bob Dylan wrote a song called Everything is Broken. And he hammers the point home. He writes, Broken lines, broken strings, broken threads, broken springs, broken idols, broken heads, people sleeping in broken beds. Ain't no use jiving, ain't no use joking, everything is broken. Broken bottles, broken plates, broken switches, broken gates, broken dishes, broken parts. Streets are filled with broken hearts, broken words, never meant to be spoken. Everything is broken. Seems like every time you stop and turn around, something else just hit the ground. Broken cutters, broken saws, broken buckles, broken laws, broken bodies, broken bones, broken voices on broken phones. Take a deep breath. Feel like you're choking? Everything is broken. Every time you leave and go off someplace, things fall to pieces in my face. Broken hands on broken plows, broken treaties, broken vows broken pipes, broken tools, people bending, broken rules, hound dog howling, bulldog croaking, everything is broken. <laughs> Quite the poet, Bob Dylan. <laughs> but he had a point, and his point is the same point that the writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, is making to us right now. Everything is broken. It's crooked. It can't be made straight. And what is lacking, what is lacking, cannot be, cannot be counted. Everything is lacking. Everything falls short. Everything. In verse 16, he says, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceive that this is also but a striving after wind. You see, this whole experiment, that he's doing, to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven, to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, that's left him cold. Why? Verse 18, For much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Solomon, in all of his wisdom, has looked at the earth, the world, and all that's done under the sun, and he is vexed in his soul. And just sad, because everything is broken. Since the fall, the world is under a curse. Humans in this world are broken, because we're sinners. We've exchanged God for a lie. We've looked at the blessings rather than the blessor. So that's the state of the world that we're in, and that's kind of the basis for where Solomon is going here. This world, we can't expect much from this world because of sin. Sin in our own hearts, the sin in the world, death as a result of sin, the brokenness that's a result of the sin in the world, wars, hatred, violence, all those things. That's our lot in this world. Well, secondly, he points to us now the emptiness of gaining the world. 
Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Solomon sets out on a quest, and he, he describes it for us. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, It is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, look, it was all vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Well, if you look at the life of Solomon as he's described in Kings and Chronicles, you'll know that he was extremely wealthy. Kings sent tribute to him. He made silver in Israel very common. It was uh, kind of got worthless because it was so common there. He had many horses and stalls and chariots. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. He had incredible amounts of food. It's described there in 1 Kings 3. He had it all. And what does Solomon say? Meh. It's not that great. Had it all. Everything you'd ever want. It was nothing. Vanity, vapor, ephemeral, nothing much to it. Just kind of blase about it all. And you've had that experience. You haven't had the, I don't know anybody here who's had the wealth of of Solomon, but you've desired things, you've pursued things, and perhaps you've acquired things, and then when you get it, after a while, it's like, well, I wish I had this one now, you know, it's kind of like the old, the, the, you know, the, I, the, the telephones that we have, the cell phones that we have, they, they, they completely have built their empire on that principle, that we will not be satisfied more than two years with any phone that we have. We've got to get the new one now. I'm convinced that they have an iPhone 100 already, you know, planned and made. They're just bringing them out one at a time so we will buy it every time it comes out. That's what Solomon has experienced. He got it all. And he said, eh. Look at verse 12. <clears throat> so I... Turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do? <clears throat> excuse me. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Well, this might be better translated. Uh, the so there in verse twelve. Thus, 
I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly because it bookends with chapter 1, verse 17, where he says, I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And now he's giving us the conclusion of that quest to know wisdom and madness and folly. So, so thus I had turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. And then that four, or what can the man do? Maybe it would be better if we said, indeed, or truly, and that's legitimate translation of that, of that uh, conjunction. Indeed, you know, after his search, indeed, truly, what can the man do who comes after the king? And, and, and I think he's saying, he's talking about himself. What, what can the man do? What's he going to discover? What's somebody going to discover that goes out and tries to gain the world? What are they going to do more than I've done what are they going to find out? That it's already been done. That, that what I've discovered, you'll discover it too. You're going to go out, if you do the same thing that I did, and, and acquire pleasures and possessions and projects and power in your life, if you acquire these things, you're not going to find anything different than I've found. It's going to be the same. Only what has already been done by me. So if Solomon didn't find it there, why do you think you can? Why do I think I can? Well, then he goes on and really lowers the boom on us here in 13 and following. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness and yet, I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I become so very wise? And I said in my heart that this, is also, that this also is vanity. For the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and is striving after wind. Yes, he says, wisdom is better than folly, because, you know, you're not walking around just completely ignorant and blind, but you've got to know, whether you're wise or you're a fool, you're going to die. The same thing happens to all of us. And because you're going to die, you can't take it with you. Whatever, all the things you've accumulated, you can't take it with you. Verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is also is vanity and a great evil. What is a man from all the toil and striving of heart which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night he, his heart does not rest this also is a vanity. You know, you can spend your whole life 
accumulating an empire, building it and, and uh, grooming it and, and, and making sure everything is taken care of. You can spend sleepless nights, sorrowful days, do vexing, difficult work, and then you leave it to the next generation and it just disappears. And that is exactly what happened to Solomon. His son Rehoboam was a fool. And as soon as Rehoboam became king, he immediately lost five-sixths of the kingdom to Jeroboam, the evil Jeroboam. The ten northern tribes departed and put themselves under King Jeroboam. And all he had left was his two southern tribes. Solomon's complete empire just vanished when his son took over. Jesus said in Luke 12, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That's exactly what happened to Solomon. Well, thirdly, you know, as we see the broken world in which we live in, and the futility, the emptiness of gaining the world. What is the best for us in the world? What is the conclusion that Solomon reaches here? He says it, verse 24, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after wind. Well, verse 26 tells us that wisdom, knowledge, and joy are given by God. They are gifts from him. These things don't come to us by striving for possessions and pleasures and projects and power. You don't get those things by striving for them. You don't get true joy by finding it in those things. God is the one who gives that gift, and it can only be received from Him. And who receives these gifts? He says, the one who pleases Him. And more literally, I think it's better to look at it more literally because I think it's more profound not just the one who pleases him, but to the person who is good in his sight. To the person who is good in his sight. That's who he gives knowledge and wisdom and joy. To the one who is good in his sight. Now, we've got a problem. No one is good in his sight. None is righteous, Paul says in Romans 3. Not one. He's actually quoting Psalms there. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have sinned and fall short 
of the glory of God. And you think, well, maybe we could be good and God would bless us. But he goes on to say, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. The only thing that you get from following the law or trying to follow the law is the knowledge of sin, that you are a sinner. You can't keep the law. That's the problem we have. As Solomon said, that which is crooked cannot be made straight. We're crooked. We're broken. We're sinners. We were created for fellowship with God, though. We were created to be just like Adam and Eve before the fall. You know, they, they heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That was a sound they recognized. Now, they, were, they had fallen into sin at that point when it records it, but it was a sound they recognized because it's a sound that happened often. They walked with God in the garden. They had face-to-face fellowship with their Creator in the garden. That's why he, they were put there. But that fellowship was broken when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit and fell into sin. And that has been passed down to us. We're all sinners. We're crooked. We're lacking. And our lack cannot be counted. But God is the one who can make things straight. And he did. He wanted to restore that relationship with us, so he sent his son to be the mediator between God and man. You know, if we just decided, you know what, I think I'm going to go up to the White House and and just go see the president. Just go right up there and drop in on him. Or I'm going to run over to Buckingham Palace and just walk through that front door and see the queen, you're going to be disappointed. You might get shot. (laughs) Well, we can't just usher ourselves as we are into God's holy presence. He's a holy God, and we're not holy. We're not righteous. We're not good. But God sent Jesus into the world to die on the cross, to pay for our sins. He paid the price, the penalty for our sins. And he lived a perfect life. And if we have, by faith, united ourselves to him, everything that he did in his life and his death and his resurrection is credited to us. It's imputed to us. So when God looks at those who are united to Christ by faith, He sees people who are good. Not because we're good, but because Christ is good and we're united to Christ. And we've been made holy. We are a holy nation, a royal priesthood that can come into His presence. We're welcome to to come boldly before the throne of grace because we've been adopted into His family. We are His children. We are joint heirs with Christ. It's ours now. That fellowship that Adam enjoyed in the garden is ours now. And we can glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And see, that's what it's, what it's all about. We don't just embrace Christ to save ourselves from hell. Yes, that's true, He does. 
But that's not the reason. The reason is for us to come back into a relationship with the Lord, to know God, to glorify Him and enjoy Him. That is the chief purpose, the chief end of man. That is, that's what it's all for and what it's all about. So you think you've checked the box, you've walked the aisle, you've prayed the prayer, and you've got your fire insurance. You've missed the point altogether. Do you enjoy God's presence now? Well, heaven is not just going to be us getting together with all of our loved ones who've died before us. The whole point of heaven is to come to the marriage supper of the Lamb and to have fellowship with our Savior, our God, to to be with him forever in his kingdom. That's the point, to, to be face-to-face with our creator. That's our greatest good. But the Christian can experience that now. And that's what Jesus died. He's a mediator between God and man. And we've been adopted. So it'd be, it would be weird to adopt a child and not have a relationship with the child. Or to be a child who has been adopted by parents, yet we never talk to the parents. We don't have anything to do with the parents. It would be odd to have a status change without a relationship. If we're, if we're adopted into God's family, we should be enjoying that relationship. Whether we eat, whether we drink, or whatever we do, doing it all to the glory of God. That's what Solomon is saying here. We can't really have joy in eating and drinking and all the toil of our life unless we get it from God. It's not in the toil. It's not in the eating or the drinking. It's in God. And while we're eating and drinking and toiling in this life and we have a relationship with God, then our lives will be full of joy. But yet, how many of us, myself included, continue to look to the things of this world for joy, for temporary joy? And we live our lives like God is not even there. Well, Brother Lawrence was a, a monk back in the hundreds of years ago, 1600s. And I wouldn't agree with everything, all of his theological positions. Uh, he was a bit of a mystic, not a bit of a mystic, much of a mystic. But he was uh, an uneducated monk, and he lived in a monastery, and he worked in the kitchen. And he made it his goal, and he wrote a well, his writings, his short, little brief writings, is a little short book called The Practice of the Presence of God. He made it his goal to live moment by moment in God's presence. Whatever he did, he tried to do out of love for God. Every moment of every day. He, could, he, he would just as much find his God in his work than he did in his prayers. And he's written a small book. You can find it online. And uh, we need to read it through the lens of our biblical Christianity. But he, he discovered something. He disliked working in the kitchen. That was his assignment in the, in the monastery. And he did that for 15 years. And he wanted to do something more important. But he learned, by God's grace, how to rejoice among the pots and the pans and the dishpan hands, that doing the little things for the love of God is what it's all about. Um, over time, he noticed that sanctification does not depend so much on changing our activities 
as it does on doing them for God rather than for ourselves? Would it change your life if you did everything that you do, you eating, your drinking, your toil, your job, whatever it is, your parenting, your relationships? What difference would it make if you did it in God's presence and for the love of God? That's what Solomon discovered in all of his searching, that without God, apart from God, there is no joy in life. I challenge each one of us this week to seek God's presence, not just in prayers and devotions, but in our washing the dishes, in the little things that we do, and driving the car, and wherever we are, to walk with God, to live before the face of God, to be constantly in, in mind that He's with us. You know, it's hard to sin when you think, well, God's right here. <laughs> but that's the truth. We'd like to forget that and push Him away, but think if we remembered that, how it would transform our lives, that God has promised to be with us, and that's the whole point for us to enjoy Him in every aspect in life. Well, I challenge you with that, and I pray that the Lord would grant us all a sense of his presence in our lives. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have invited us to have a relationship with you. It's astounding. And that you have paid the ultimate price for that to happen, sending your son to suffer and die in our place so that we might become your children. You've given us the status. It would be great to be your friend, but you have made us your children. So, Lord, we pray that we would revel in that this morning and and not just this morning but every moment of our lives to continuously remember this good news this good news of salvation from your hand to us and to walk in light of that and we pray that anybody here who doesn't know that would reach out to you lord turn from sin and turn to you that you might reveal yourself to them and open their heart and change their lives and give them true joy that lasts forever and we pray this in jesus name amen